on this day in 1989, Gods of God, The Cure, issued a rather gloomy record that ended up being their bestseller. 34 years ago, we embraced this beautiful song. We embraced the head-to-toe black, the eyeliner, the large hair, the standing in the hallway at parties saying nothing all night. It was a joyous era. Love song. It's all I can say, Verity. What a song this is. I know. It's the first time you've played a song I've actually recognised on this show. I, that's right. And the band? <laughs> the Cure? Yes. And they had another one about a spider, I think. Something to do with the spider watching them. Nice song, isn't it there, Connor? Do you know The Cure? I uh, do know The Cure. Yeah, I like some of The Cure. Um, yeah. No, no. They're, they're, very good. They're good. Yeah, but very nice. Adele covered this right. Adele. Really? Yeah, so this this is the reason I know this song is Adele covered it, and I heard the Adele cover, and I was like, this is a cool song, and this is how I know this song. All oh, right, a lovely song, isn't it? So, 34 years ago, hard to believe it's 34 years, but uh, there we have it. Now, a little bit of your feedback for this afternoon. Uh, Tikoite Croquet Club have had a resurgence of members for golf croquet, going from 4 to 14 in one year, says Shona. Joe says, late 40s, as a preschooler, my friend and I played at the Westport Victoria Park while our mums played croquet behind a hedge. My friend fell from the top of the slide and broke his arm. No helicopter parents in those days, uh, says Joe. And Matt says, Wallace, I love trees, but working in the stormwater industry, they really do ruin our stormwater and sewer networks. The roots of large trees break and block pipes everywhere in Auckland. London plane trees also have leaves that block the stormwater catch pits. They are nearly as bad as cabbage tree leaves. So there is another point of view there. Um, not necessary for grinding the stumps and uh, taking them out and putting the car parks in, but just being mindful to actually rake the leaves up, huh? You are on the panel on RNZ National. And actually, we had, before we go to the EV charge, we had, we've had a bit of a response about uh, Levin's trees, these beautiful um, uh, 120-year-old notable London trees. And with us, we have um, a person from Levin. Welcome. Hello. Are you talking to me? How are you? What's your name? <laughs> My name is Lutzo. How is the wonderful Levin this afternoon? Oh, it's very pleasant. Just a little bit of overcast sky, but warm and no wind. Now, do you like your trees? Yeah, I I do. And we are, uh, you know, we're a a suburb or provincial town that needs more of them. And it enhances living for me a great deal, having those trees in the main street. And I know, I know it's parking is an issue in the main street, but we have got other places we can park and, and then walk down into the main street through an arcade. So I think it would be a tragedy for them to go. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thoroughfare. Yep, keep going. You know, just aesthetically, you know, it just, it makes a difference to me Good. anyway, yeah. you know, having those trees in the main. Indeed. Yeah, well, thank, thanks, thanks for listening to the panel there, Hatso, and uh, good to have you here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, uh, thanks to some world-leading tech being developed right here in Aotearoa, EV owners 
could soon be wirelessly charging their cars whilst driving. University of Auckland researchers are testing how to put wireless charging pads into a variety of roads and car parks. And it's not research that's going only to be used in the distant future. We could see wireless charging pads in car parks as early as next year. With us is Professor at the University of Auckland's Department of Electrical, Computer and Software Engineering, Grant Kovic. Kia ora, Grant. Yeah, good afternoon. This was an issue that National Simeon Brown raised, that uh, if we wanted more uptake, uh, we needed to get the infrastructure right. Well, hey presto, here you are. And I've been reading reports from around the world. You folks here in New Zealand are doing some extraordinary stuff. What sets this research apart? Well, I guess um, this technology has been uh, sort of uh, a long time coming and been developed for a long time. So we we started this work nearly 30 years ago. Oh, wow. And uh, in the process, we've taken this technology into lots of applications. The electric vehicle one is probably the hardest one to take it into because you're talking about uh, a vehicle and a ground side uh, technology and of course we have humans which drive vehicles they don't necessarily park in uh, exactly the same place mm. and position all the time and you have vehicles with different height to ground and different power demands so it's quite a complex uh, but also really interesting application for wireless charging and that's uh, the thing that keeps me interested and keeps me working on it. It's a gr- it's a, it's a amazing uh topic and especially for those who have bought an electric vehicle because the number one issue is you're going from say I don't know as an example Auckland to Taupo and you've got to really think hard about where to charge how to charge and if there's going to be a little queue uh, at your charging station there Grant which often these days apparently there is. Yes, so this kind of technology is looking to take away that kind of anxiety. So there's two aspects to anxiety we have as electric vehicle owners. One of them is remembering to plug in, and uh, we, you know, all of the places we would plug in. And so if you if you consider that uh, this technology can be uh, taken and put into position, then whenever you park, you it, it will naturally connect your vehicle and will take out of the charging for you so you don't have to sort of uh, sort of wake up halfway through the night and think did I plug it in didn't I not or was I sort of thinking I was going to drive out again um, this will do that automatically for you and the efficiency of the charge will be exactly the same as for a plug-in uh, the dynamic part is 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 a future pathway but is obviously where we want to take it if we want to particularly do a high heavy vehicle um, uh, systems as well as passenger vehicles and we want to make it possible that we can lower the battery weight not force a vehicle to carry batteries we want them to carry the goods um, people all that sort of thing and so this could actually improve the energy uh, density and the uh, lower the charging times when they do come to start, uh, uh, um, Connor isn't this great tech coming out of this country. Yeah, yeah look, it, it sounds great, um, the work that Grant and his team have been doing. I guess the question I've got is, um, does the car have to be, or the vehicle have to be stationary, or can you do it sort of on the go? You know, Can you have this something embedded in the road and just drive, drive over it and get charged as you go? Yeah, both. 
So oh, okay. um, obviously um, there's two steps to the process. One, we have to have a system on the vehicle that would actually enable it to uh, receive the wireless charge. Yep. And then we actually obviously have to have car parks or a strip of road that is actually set up to actually transfer that power. But yes, once, once you've got that, yes, you can do both. Verity. Um, Grant, I'm curious. I had a wireless phone charger and it was absolutely rubbish and I had to put it in a really specific spot every day uh, to charge it and so I'd go to bed at night thinking it was charging and wake up find out it wasn't charging because it was like one centimetre off the charge point. How do you get around that problem with cars? Because obviously they're massive and hugely varying in size. So like, what is your field of accuracy for where the car has to be to charge? Okay, so this is this is a really good point, and why um, electric vehicle systems are, are a much more challenging application. So, as I mentioned, there are various heights to grounds, and various parking alignments. But what we're trying to do is make it possible so that you could park with plus or minus 100 millimeters. That's sort of 10 centimeters. Um, if you think about it, close to half a foot or away from uh, plus or minus and that sort of thing, and in both, in, in all directions. So we're, we're trying to make it possible that your normal parking would not be uh, a, tr- a problem at all. And then, of course, they would, uh, car manufacturers want to add some kind of um, a sort of system on the dashboard that would say, hey, you're in the right uh, parking uh, alignment for receiving power. Gosh, EV owners listening to this will be positively salivating about this type of um, uh, technology. It is actually really quite world-leading. It's quite extraordinary uh, talking about EV infrastructure because that's another big part of the puzzle, not just your cars there. So finally, Grant, um, how long do you think it'll be before we see wireless charging in roads? So two parts to that. One, I think we'll see a rollout of stationary charging and then when there's enough vehicles that have converted to electric and can take on the wireless, I think we'll start to see that rollout dynamically. So it's happening globally. Um, there's or, or vehicles are starting to come out now with wireless charging for stationary applications and we're in the process globally of testing the dynamics. So there's a number of programs underway now for pilot systems in the US, in Europe, and in Asia. Um, New Zealand tends to be, you know, we're, we're, we're leading this technology development globally, yet we're probably the last one to get it because New Zealand sort of gets the, the technology after it's been tested everywhere else. But I, I would say probably five years from now, we'll see a lot of systems out there which Goodness. will be stationary charging, and then we'll start to see the dynamic coming in. There you go. Uh, That uh, will be big news when that uh, starts to roll out with us, uh, Professor Grant Kovic there on EV uh, World Leading Tech. Thank you, Grant. Uh, I'm a dairy pharmacist, a listener. My electric car outlasts my bladder on long trips, and it's all I need. (laughs) There you go. You may scoff at Connor's. No, I don't scoff at it. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying you may scoff at Connor Wallace, but he's correct. The majority of current Wellington City Councillors are anti-cars, anti-business, anti-deluvian. The city is uglified by all these bollards on the street. Uh, we're in decline, says uh, Leslie. It's 14 away from five. The panel, Coca-Cola.
has announced that Sprite's signature green bottles are going clear so that they're easier to recycle into new bottles. A spokesperson for Coca-Cola Oceania said it's a step further towards a circular economy for the company's packaging. While the current bottles are recyclable, green PET plastic is usually just turned into single-use clothing or carpet. Greenpeace, not impressed. They're calling it greenwashing. And with us is Dressa Lee, Greenpeace Aotearoa Plastics campaigner. Kia ora. Kia ora. Good evening. This is surely a good thing, right? I mean, come on. It's a step towards, as they say, a circular economy. It's something. Um, well, um, you know, we're in a climate crisis and we're also in a plastic pollution crisis that's accelerating the climate emergency. Um, doing something so tiny that it makes no real impact, uh, propagating false and misleading solutions so you can continue polluting, then calling it sustainable when you are well positioned as a global beverage giant to do the right thing is why we are calling it greenwash. How else, how else can they sell, yeah, how else can they sell their Sprite? Well, when we talk when when we talk about real action, uh, real solutions, and system change to mitigate these crises, we uh, you know there's a public mandate to ban the plastic bottle altogether, the plastic beverage bottle altogether, and incentivise refill and reuse systems. We have a petition to ban the bottle and incentivise refill and reuse, and more than a hundred thousand New Zealanders have signed that. Okay, let's go around the panel. Shall we start with Connor first? So I guess what Dress is talking about is that uh, that bottle chargeback scheme that we used to have as one sort of option to uh, lessen the single use. You know, you, you, you'd recall that, Connor. Well, I, I guess, you know, milk bottles were the, were the main thing, weren't That's they, the that, one. We, that, we, <clears throat> uh, that we used, and that seemed to work okay. Um, I think it's the practicalities of it, isn't it? I mean, it, it, I guess it's good that they are taking out the colour and you can recycle them. Um, as opposed to just keep making more plastic bottles, but I, you know, and I agree, we've got a heck of a lot of plastic pollution, you know, and those small bead uh, plastic pollution things. Um, if you can get the practicalities of reuse okay and sort of get it to happen in a, a, a sort of an efficient way, you know, that that would be great. But but I also think, you know, with climate change, we've all got to make little contributions in some way, shape, or form. And if we wait for the big, big single bullet. Big silver bullet, um, you know, no one will do anything. So I think it's progress, but maybe it needs to be more progress, as Greenpeace is suggesting. Stay there, Jeresa, and uh, we can respond to once Verity has a turn. Oh, I was just gonna. I was gonna agree with you, Dresser. I think it's appalling. I think that um, if you look at like the fact that nine percent of the plastic has ever been that's ever been made has been recycled, nine percent. So something mm. like ninety-two percent, no, ninety-one percent of the plastic that's ever been made hasn't been recycled. I think Coke being like, oh yeah, we're just gonna change it so it's more easily recyclable is a massive cop out. I mean, you're changing it from one very unrecyclable product to another slightly better but still largely unrecyclable product and the fact that like coke is one of the massive plastic producers in the world the scale of their contribution to the climate change movement should be proportional to the damage that they've done and they have done a lot of damage this is not a move that's proportional to the damage that they've they're not, done they're not the only company putting fizzy in uh, plastic bottles no, that's are they? true but coca-cola is considered the largest producer of plastic pollutants in the bottling industry and it's kind of in my mind it's a little bit like someone like shell or bp coming 
out and saying, oh, yeah, guys, you know, we're planting some trees. And it's like, yeah, dude, you're also the big five corporates who since 1975 or something like that have been responsible for the majority of carbon emissions. You've got a plastic bottle right in the bag right there. Yeah, and I've been reusing it for two weeks. Just FYI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Dressa? Yeah, I mean, repeatedly, global brand audits identify Coca-Cola as, you know, the biggest plastic polluter in the world. Um, you mentioned, you know, waiting for a silver bullet. I would rather not wait. Uh, the last sustainability promise that Coca-Cola made was that they were going to increase refill and reuse um, you know, to 25% by some very far away date. And to date, that figure hasn't changed. You know, um, I wasn't suggesting that we wait. What I was suggesting is that we take what they're offering and get them to do more, you know, because it is little incremental things that all add up to something, and that's what we're trying to do with climate change, isn't it? Yeah, well, well I mean, as, as the global beverage giant that they are, um, we have to take what they're giving and what we're saying is that it's it's not enough. Mm. Um, you know, especially knowing that 9% of all plastic ever produced um, has been recycled, it's still plastic. It's still single-use plastic. Um, so I don't believe that changing the colour of the plastic is going to somehow improve collection rates. Good to have you on, Teresa. Kia ora. Thank you for your time. That's yeah, Teresa Lee. That's a Greenpeace Aotearoa Plastics uh, campaigner there. Jess in Queenstown says, Wallace, I lived in the Netherlands. Uh, every single supermarket, every single supermarket had a buyback scheme. It was awesome. You take your bottles back, spend money on groceries. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thank you for your response on that. As eight away from five, we have Verity Johnson and Connor English on the program this afternoon, the panel. Now, Vaping is not the only thing that Australia is clamping down on. Carver is another thing. Ever tried it? Well, last year, Food Standards Australia NZ agreed to amend the status of Carver in the code, which would essentially ban takeaway Carver and tighten regulations into how it is prepared, effectively immediately in Australia. But New Zealand didn't follow suit. With us is Dr. Apo Aporosa, Pacific Health Researcher at Te Kurafatu Oho Māori School of Psychology at Waikato University. Dr. Aporosa, uh, Nisambula. Yes, Ambula Sierra Kimini, my panel. Nice to be back with you. Great to have you on, Apo. What do you make of Australia's decision? Yeah, very difficult uh, uh, situation over there. I've been dealing with them off and on since 2008. That's um, included speaking to the ministers of health and uh, that type of thing. And, um, yeah, just for some reason, the Australian government refuses to listen to the evidence and continues to base their cover discussions and what have you on information, on misinformation, exaggerated media reports and what have you, which uh, is ultimately having an impact on our Pacific whānau and friends that are over there. I, you, you know, I know how um, integral, uh, if you're Pacific or part Pacific, how Carver is so significant to the, the, the makeup of getting together, your family, whatever. Um, it, I can imagine it'll really affect Pacific communities there. Yeah, it's interesting. In 2007, when they first brought in uh, and these regulations, uh, um, a journalist um, 
Sioni uh, Pinomi. He, he wrote an article which um, showed clearly that as soon as carbon was taken away or restricted in, uh, in the Pacific community in Australia, that led to increased alcohol use, which went on to be increased violence in families, you know, loss of cultural knowledge, that type of thing. And the thing I think people really misunderstand is that kava is a very safe product. The effects are very subtle, and that's you know, reflected in the fact that we treat it as a food um, under the Food Standards Code here in Aotearoa. Right. Ah, yes. Round the panel on this. Firstly, though, Verity, have you tried it? Have you ever had it? I haven't tried it. I want to, but I haven't tried it. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, why is there such hysteria around it? Because from my point of view, alcohol is a hell of a lot more dangerous and damaging. But there seems to be this kind of like bogeyman myth around kava being a really bad thing. And I'm just wondering, like, where did that originate from, Apoor? Well, that, first of all, the, it was kind of misnamed by um, Johan Foster, who was with Captain James Cook uh, when he went into the Pacific. He named it Piper Mephisticum. So Mephisticum is essentially inferring that it that it's a uh, it's from the pepper plant, but it's an it's an alcohol of some sort. And we know from uh, psychometric tests that we've done here after drinking kava for six hours, three point six liters each. Um, that we, it has, basically has no effect on the cognition. It you know, doesn't have any effects like alcohol, cannabis. Right. Or, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Connor. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering what problem the, um, the Aussie government are trying to solve. And, and I think leaving it alone is probably the right thing that the New Zealand government have done. Yeah, why, why can't people enjoy their carbs? It's a bit like enjoying a, well, I was going to say home brew, but, um, you know, why, why can't you just enjoy what you've always enjoyed? No one's hurt, are they? Or, or are they? I don't uh, know. I, I think the interesting thing when you come to the Australian government, even in relation to Carver, you know, they, they say that, that they have these restrictions, quote, to protect public health and safety. You know, from what? A food? And if they wanted to protect public health and safety, why aren't they focusing on alcohol? Because, and we won't even go there, but, uh, you know, you just need to look at the Bonomo uh, et al. study that was done recently on if, uh, the harm levels of alcohol at 77 harm points in Carver at three. Vaping actually coming at four, which was interesting. So we're talking <laughs> massive chalk and cheese, you know. So you're saying, uh, Paul, that those barriers in Australia can prevent you from posting about a Carver to your family or friends, but you can post a box of Jack Daniels. How about that, eh? You nailed it. You know, it's illegal to post 100 grams of kava, which uh, you can't overdose on kava. You can't kill yourself on kava. But I don't know. I, I couldn't drink a bottle of Jack Daniels, not a 40 ounce. It would kill me. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> so are you confident, uh, Dr. Aparosa, that uh, New Zealand won't relook at this, it won't follow suit, or that would just be pretty untenable if they did? I doubt it. I, you know, I've had a number of discussions with people in uh, reasonably high levels in the government, and um, they they understand the safety level of carbon. They also understand that they have made commitments as the Aotearoa government, as signatories to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. They recognise the cultural practices and are living by that. And I think the other thing that people often misunderstand too is that the Aotearoa government recognised that Māori, a large number of Māori, are increasingly using kava as part of their pre-migration uh, you know, um, traditional practices. They, they would prefer, I'm sure, that Māori and Pacific drank kava over alcohol. And um, th- there are other factors, but I'm really pleased with the way that they've gone. And, um, yeah. Dr. Aparosa, pleasure. Thanks for being on the program. No, He's a Pacific Health researcher at Takurafata Oho, uh, Oho Māori School of Psychology at Waka University. I didn't ask you, Conor English, have you had a... Uh, 
bowl of kava, partake, uh, partaken. Yeah, back in the mid-90s when I was uh, working for um, a minister, we went to um, uh, Fiji and we did have some, have some kava there. I only had it once, though. It's an acquired taste. Once you get yeah. into the acquiring of it, it's absolutely refreshing. Yeah, and it's 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 a, it is a social interactive uh, sort of exercise as well. So I can see how people, you know, yep. like doing it as as a group. People often say, Verity, you know, have you tried a cup of tea? Because to those who aren't familiar with just a plain cup of tea, it could be just a muddy taste, you know. <laughs> tea tastes awful. Tea is like you're like, kidding. No, I'm serious. Oh. It's like saucepan water. Why That's what are you, it Why me. are you even on the show? <laughs> Who knows? Just to annoy you. Very, exactly. Verity Johnson, Connor English, wonderful stuff, both of you. I am Wallace Chapman. I am back tomorrow, 3.45. Checkpoint is next with Lisa Owen.